the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And we are broadcasting slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory. This is the home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Pekani, Siksika, and Kana nations, along with the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakoda Nations. This place is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Okay, so usually when we make a sprawl cast, we post a transcript on our website for those who would rather read than listen. But for this episode, we're doing the opposite. This episode is an audio version of a new profile story written by Taylor Lambert about Stephen Carter, the Calgary-based political strategist. If you've followed the sprawl at all, you'll recognize Taylor's work. He's written profile stories of Jason Nixon, Jyoti Gondek, and Jason Kenney for The Sprawl. He was the only Alberta journalist to go to San Francisco and investigate Kenney's right-wing activism from his university days. Taylor's pieces are consistently among The Sprawl's most read articles. His Kenney story, The Young Zealot, is still so well-read that I joke with Taylor that we should just make that article the Sprawl homepage. Anyway, here's Taylor Lambert reading his new story. Stephen Carter wants to talk. He's heard that I'm writing a profile of him, no doubt from one or more of the people from his past and current orbit whom I've been reaching out to for months. First he tries Sprawl Editor-in-Chief Jeremy Clausus. So what's up? You calling me soon? And then me a few days later. What you up to? What you up to? It's almost playful, like a game. When I receive this message, I have never previously interacted with Carter. I've also never had a profile subject reach out before I contact them, which is typically after months of reporting around the edges. If these messages feel odd... They also seem on brand. Carter could have waited, knowing I would contact him eventually, but he preferred to make the first move, to let us know he knew what we were up to, that we couldn't keep Stephen Carter in the dark. Both messages also came in the form of direct messages on Twitter, his cherished arena, where he has repeatedly gotten into trouble for saying things he shouldn't. Stephen Carter wants to talk. And when he talks, people listen. Carter is probably the most well-known non-candidate political personality in Alberta. His associated victories have been splashy ones, unlikely ones, history-making ones. Danielle Smith, Alison Redford, Nahed Nenshi, Jyoti Gondek. He has been lauded as a brilliant campaign mastermind with a knack for spotting paths to victory. His falls from that pedestal have been at least as frequent in public. If Carter's string of successful campaigns indicate a sharp political mind and a talent for strategy, the other patterns in his career tell important counter-stories. 
graceless departures from three high-profile chief of staff positions, interpersonal conflict, and an aggressive online persona that any strategist would advise a candidate against. His critics dismiss him as an overrated self-aggrandizer, but he has helped elect the last two mayors of Calgary, both visible minorities, one the city's first Muslim leader, the other the first woman and the first woman premier of Alberta. He is good at winning campaigns, as even those who disdain him admit. He is a controversial figure, having twice collected six-figure severance packages paid for by the public, while his former events company never paid back the hundreds of thousands of dollars it owed around town to individuals and organizations, from small businesses to the University of Calgary. This stemmed from the failure of back-to-back events, water skiing, and the Dalai Lama, which Carter organized in 2009. This story is based in part on interviews with people who have known or worked with Carter in various capacities throughout his life, from politics to his event planning business. Most declined to speak on the record, citing Carter's penchant for public fights and legal threats. Watch your back, one political figure warned. When I meet Carter for coffee in Inglewood, it's the most surreal interview I've done in 14 years of journalism. He wants to talk, and does for three hours. And I listen, writing notes, glancing down to make sure I'm still recording, trying not to look surprised when he says sharp, even derogatory things about Redford, Nenshi, Gondek, the left, his critics on Twitter, all on the record. I think Carter likes to have an antagonistic slash playful um, place in the world. Says Rebecca Northen, an actor and friend who has known Carter since university. And I think he might be more comfortable having enemies than the average person. Born in Calgary in the summer of 1969, Stephen Blair Carter grew up in the northwest neighborhood of Collingwood. His path to politics and notoriety was circuitous. A flair for the theatrical initially led him to the arts. He received a bachelor's degree in commerce from the University of Calgary in 1994, but focused his studies nearly as much on theater as on business. After university, he worked with the Vocational and Rehabilitation Research Institute at the University of Calgary, to start People's Theatre, a company which ran classes in theatre productions with developmentally disabled people, alongside other actors. It was an incredible, like it was a really special experience to to meet people of different abilities in in this unifying arena of a theatre rehearsal hall. Says Northen, who participated in the shows. After kicking around the theatre scene for a while, and bartending at Coconut Joe's on Electric Avenue, Carter got a job as an acting director of development at Theatre Calgary. It was here that he met Heather McRae, who worked as a development associate. I was her boss, he tells me, adding with feigned outrage, scandal. A few months before they surprised their friends with a backyard wedding in 1997, Carter and McRae started an events management company. 
it operated as a numbered company called 745917 Alberta Limited until 2006, when they registered the name Carter McRae Events. Carter hadn't really wanted that career, but while he continued to be involved in the arts, including chairing the Calgary Professional Arts Alliance and running Pleiades Theatre before it became Vertigo, it soon became clear which path offered more opportunity. The duo built a reputation for their company and drew steadily larger contracts, corporate events, festivals, whomever was hiring. One 2006 corporate event at Hotel Arts, for which Carter McRae was contracted, turned tragic. A mechanical calf roping ride malfunctioned, striking a summer student for the host company in the head and killing him. Carter's company did not provide the machine and faced no legal liability, but he did personally evaluate the device, and judging it to be dangerous when mixed with a crowd and alcohol consumption, ordered it fenced off. The trial judge's decision notes twice that Carter McRae called themselves, quote, a world-class event planner, and that they, quote, did not foresee the hazard the calf roping machine presented to the operators, even though they did a hazard assessment and assisted with the setup of the machine, end quote. The judge states that the event host, XI Technologies, quote, was entitled to expect some degree of expertise from Carter McRae, insofar as assessing any hazard or risks the calf roping machine presented, end quote. However, the decision also notes, quote, the significant and deadly risk the machine presented to the operators, given its faulty condition, went unnoticed by a significant number of professionals, end quote. By 2009, Carter McRae had landed some big contracts. Two in particular stood out, the World Water Ski Championships and the Dalai Lama. The latter was especially a big deal. Carter McRae would help bring a world leader, one of the most famous people in the world, to Calgary, and it would destroy their company. The water ski event was held that August at Predator Bay, an artificial pair of lakes just south of the city, designed specifically for water skiing. Carter branded the event Drench Fest. He brought in bands like Finger Eleven and Headley to perform, and as usual, hired multiple contractors to take care of everything from graphic design to logistics. Advanced ticket sales, however, were low. The global recession had taken hold and disposable incomes had shrunk. The organizers hoped people would turn up once it started, but then it poured rain for the first two days. The whole thing was a bust. According to Carter, the nonprofit organization that hired Carter McRae had assured him that they had a $200,000 bank guarantee that didn't exist. The organization went broke, and Carter told the Calgary Herald at the time that his company was shortchanged almost $500,000, despite the event bringing in over $1 million. Meanwhile, the Dalai Lama was coming to town six weeks later. He was to host a speaking event at the Saddle Dome on September 30th, then headline a conference hosted by the University of Calgary on October 1st that also included former South African leader F.W. de Klerk. 
There was also a concert featuring Katie Lang and Brian Adams. But things weren't looking good. The Dalai Lama doesn't charge speaking fees, but his expenses get covered by the host organizers. Everything from a private plane to hotels and a very specific chair for the stage. On top of that, ticket sales were soft. On August 31st, three weeks after the water ski event and one month before the Dalai Lama, Carter tweeted at Jan Arden, quote, At Jan Arden, enjoying your tweets, wondering if you would be interested in a project with the Dalai Lama? www.dalailamacalgary.com. Hope so! End quote. Carter says he fought with the Dalai Lama's people for a crucial additional event, a $5,000 a head gig where the city's elite could hobnob with the man himself, and thus offset the overall costs, something the Dalai Lama had agreed to before in other cities. Carter flew to New York, where they were headquartered, to press the issue. But he says they refused because his was a for-profit business, albeit one hired by a public university. The Dalai Lama's team did not respond to a request for comment. With both events, Carter McRae had hired many private contractors, large and small. They had by and large been working on credit. Carter said he and McRae lost $200,000 of their own money in the debacle. The company went insolvent, which means you can't pay the debts you owe, even if you sell all of your assets. A lot of people whose expenses were supposed to be covered by Carter McRae lost thousands of dollars. The Globe and Mail reported that, quote, some performer expenses have not been repaid, including those of Mr. DeClerc, end quote. Carter McRae was sued by several of the largest creditors the following year, and the court ordered writs of enforcement for $568,663.30, including $406,000 to the University of Calgary. None of it was paid. In a statement to the sprawl, the university acknowledged the writ of enforcement for that sum against Carter's company, but added that it, quote, cannot comment on efforts to collect this amount, end quote. Carter still resents the fact that the contractors his company owes money to, including people with small businesses out of pocket for tens of thousands of dollars, blame him for what happened. Some of them are still mad. You know, very mad. Like, we tried to do our best for people, but we didn't have any money. One small contractor told me he considered Carter a friend and found it strange when he and McRae, quote, ghosted him when he tried to collect what he was owed. He said they never responded to him, never told him themselves what had happened, and never apologized. The contractor said he lost upwards of $70,000. I don't think I did anything wrong, says Carter, pointing out that he personally lost $200,000 as well as his company. I didn't steal anything. I didn't take anything that wasn't mine, right? I didn't make sure that I came out better than everybody else. He blames the economic downturn, the bad weather, the water skiing organization, the Dalai Lama staff. But he also says if you have a problem with what happened, we're all to blame. So we made again, we made decisions yeah. as a society. Right? We've created the ability to go insolvent right? and not go to the poorhouse. 
we would prefer to have more entrepreneurs because it is better for the society overall. Mm -hmm. And we we do so knowing that 50% of businesses are going to fail at some point. And we say that there is a consequence to that failure. And that consequence is minimal, but it is bo- and it is borne by other people. But it is not going to be borne by the society as a whole. Carter would lose more than money and his business in the affair. It would eventually cost him something he didn't yet have when those events took place. The highest profile job in politics he'd ever had. Politics, to Carter is simultaneously a venue for effecting positive change in the world and a tremendously enjoyable blood sport. Few political figures of his profile, whether candidate or backroom operative, so unabashedly relish the combat of the arena. I mean, when I started doing politics in 97, I was like, it was crack cocaine to me. Carter wears his own politics on his sleeve, passionately advocating for what he calls pragmatism and others might call centrism a business-friendly progressivism largely in step with the values of Redford, Nenshi, and Gondek. Carter views himself as simply taking common-sense, practical approaches to challenging issues, rather than adhering dogmatically to a predetermined ideology. He denies that this amounts to an ideology, but it overlaps quite neatly with so-called radical centrism, a form of politics that argues that the middle road is not just the best way forward, but the only defensible one. Compromise and moderation rule the day. This approach wins Carter criticism from both the left and the right. He sees each as equally unreasonable, further justifying a Goldilocks approach. This dynamic, paired with Carter's aversion to compromise or apology, and his penchant for what he sees as aggressive banter and humor, invariably lead him into trouble in his favorite forum, Twitter. I think I'm aggressively funny when I want to be funny. I think my Twitter account is probably the best it's ever been right now. His online persona has evolved over the years, from excited tweets about pork buns in 2009 that went unnoticed, to a more divisive approach that gets plenty of retweets and replies and has earned him 15,000 followers. Politics and Twitter often intersect for Carter, and frequently not in his favor. One incident from early this year, while he was still Gondek's chief of staff, offers a case study. On a brutally cold New Year's Day, 2022, Drew Farrell tweeted about the record number of unhoused Calgarians in tents, mentioning that the city had planned to temporarily house people in hotel rooms during the pandemic. Carter responded, Quote, or they could go to the shelters. Currently, every shelter has open spaces. The subsequent dialogue resulted in a user sharing a CTV story about vulnerable people being kicked out of the Sun Alta LRT station during the cold snap, suggesting that, at a minimum, perhaps the city should stop doing that. Carter tweeted, quote, even when they are smoking meth? That part was left out of the story, end quote. This set off a firestorm as people accused him of lacking compassion for addicts, contributing to stigmatization, and not understanding the complexities of homelessness. Ironically, given his tweet, Carter says he supports housing first, a popular strategy that inverts the traditional approach 
of requiring people to qualify for housing assistance by first getting clean or finding work. Instead, it gives people the safety and reliability of a home and then provides social supports such as counseling and addiction treatment. Housing First, huge fan, right? Um, I think that this provincial government's take on housing that you have to be clean before you get in is stupid. If you or I were on the streets, we'd be fucking addicts because you're on the streets. <laughs> like, it's a disaster. Your life's a disaster at that stage. Of course you're going to be addicted. But house them and then work on those problems, right? Like, that's the, that's the order. I don't think you should use city bus facilities as a safe injection site. I think we should have safe injection sites. He also said not all of the people taking refuge in transit stations were homeless. They're housed addicts that are going to the party, and the party is occurring at the transit shelter. Like, come on, guys. Surely we can agree that this isn't a good thing for the people who are doing the drugs, nor for us as a society that can't use our, our facilities. But the left wing of Twitter decided that I was a prick. Thus appears another element frequently at play, a powerful reflex towards doubling down in the face of any criticism, legitimate or not. I know that when people get angry with me, they're not coming to me because of a well-researched position about what my ideas are, what I've stood for, what I've done. They come after me because I'm high enough profile that they can punch me instead of punching down. Name one person coming to me, coming after me with a reasoned argument. The mean girls of Twitter, the right wing, Brett Wilson. Many who have criticized Carter have found them facing threats of legal action. It's a tactic that he says he uses to get people to apologize, though he admits he's never actually sued anyone. Five days after the smoking meth tweet, Carter says he was ordered to issue an apology by Gondek, though it's clear he doesn't feel he did anything wrong. But Carter wasn't supposed to end up in municipal politics anyway. And the issues I care about are almost all provincial. Right? Like, I don't give a shit about municipal issues. You know, ooh, what's our zoning going to be? I don't give a shit. After working for the federal progressive conservatives in the late 1990s, doing everything from carrying Jean Charest's bags to handling Joe Clark's media, Carter's first foray into politics as a campaign manager came in 2001 when Drew Farrell offered him that position with her first bid to be Calgary's Ward 7 councillor. A leading candidate in that Ward 7 race was Augustine Gus Barron. According to Carter, Barron owned property on Memorial Drive and was using it to display prominent signage. The signs are fucking everywhere. <laughs> Huge. You know, we didn't have any sign locations like that. This was concerning because he believed his candidate had a name recognition problem. Because Drew Farrell, who the hell's Drew Farrell? Right. Right at the time, she just came from the Kensington BIA, or back then it was the BRZ. Yeah. You know, she didn't have any public persona, and so we created a name recognition. In fact, Farrell was already well known in the grassroots of the community, having long been involved in various projects and public committees. Carter says he named his price for the job and received it. Farrell said it was a volunteer position and denied paying him anything, and that he left partway through the campaign. In a statement to the sprawl, Farrell said, quote, 
Prior to being elected, I was a community and business advocate with deep connections to the neighborhoods I was hoping to represent. I had a remarkable team of committed volunteers who were instrumental in my success, and I'll be forever grateful to them. I've always insisted on running a positive campaign that focused on the issues. End quote. Fundamentally, there was a disconnect between a hungry young political strategist willing to test the limits in order to win and a candidate who would rather lose than compromise her values by engaging in what she saw as negative campaigning. See, at the end of the day, it was never very comfortable being a candidate. She was much more comfortable with the idea of just winning and being Drew Farrell. After Carter left her campaign, Farrell won handily with 44% of the vote to Barron's 20%. She held the seat for 20 years, never losing an election. She's currently the NDP candidate for Calgary Bow. In 2009, two weeks after the Dalai Lama came to Calgary, Danielle Smith won the leadership of the Wild Rose Party by a landslide. It was a surprise. The right-wing party had been fairly fringe since its creation in 2008, out of two even more fringe parties. But support had been growing. Outgoing leader Paul Hinman unexpectedly won a by-election in Calgary-Glenmore, becoming the party's sole MLA. Now they had Smith at the helm, a leader with seemingly moderate social values. Just what was needed, Pundit said, to grow the party's base beyond rural Alberta. Carter had known Smith for years. He went to her victory speech ahead of time and, he says, offered some help with the details, changing the lighting, tweaking the stage setup, giving her some speaking points. And then she said, why is no one else telling me this? He was soon hired as chief of staff to the incoming leader. One month later, Carter posted two tweets mocking Premier Ed Stelmack's accent and speech patterns. Stelmack was raised in rural Alberta as the son of Ukrainian immigrants. His first language was Ukrainian, and he didn't learn English until he began attending school. The media grabbed the story and ran for days. Carter apologized and deleted the tweets. Quote, I pulled it down right away, he told the Canadian press. I'm a bad boy. It was wrong. I'm sorry. I will never do it again. Carter told CP he meant to make fun of the media, not Stelmack. But he told me he stands by the point of his tweet, that Stelmack engages in what might be called Ukrainian code-switching, speaking to rural and urban audiences with different accents. He also said that the lessons he took from the incident were never apologize and never delete. Carter resigned as Smith's chief of staff a few days after the Stelmack tweets, and a month after Smith hired him. Ostensibly, the reason was to protect Smith and the party from his debt crisis. He said he quit before they could fire him. In just a few months, Carter had gone from top of the world to bottom of the heap. He'd lost his business, fallen massively in debt, made a lot of enemies, and blown a high-profile political gig he'd hoped might save him. But it wasn't all bad. Four days later, he tweeted, Spolumbo's for lunch. Things are looking up. In Carter's telling, Nahed Nenshi, his old university pal, came to him in January 2010 and said he was contemplating a run for mayor. 
And I say to him, that's perfect, because I know how to get you elected. Carter points to his experience running local business owner Alnur Kassam's 2007 mayoral campaign, on which Kassam spent more than $1 million of his own money, and which Carter calls a vanity exercise, as a chance to experiment with the new medium of social media and other digital strategies, along with the money to do daily tracking of polling numbers. One of the more creative tactics Carter deployed for Kassam involved the creation of a Friends of Dave Broncagne Facebook page, ostensibly supporting the rival candidate. And then with, you know, three days left, we flipped it over and said, we can't support Dave. <laughs> it was so much fun. <laughs> no votes removed. Nenshi, however, was hesitant. Carter then joined a different mayoral campaign, which promptly fired him within the week. Attempts to join another campaign were stymied. In both cases, Carter tells me. Yeah, but then some, the money people started calling and saying, you got to get rid of Carter. Things were looking hopeless. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do this. How do I rebuild? You know, no one's even given me the opportunity to rebuild. My career's over. Carter went back to Nenshi and this time managed to convince him to run. Carter was officially the strategist, but he said that with no designated campaign manager, he effectively filled both roles. When this description of Carter's involvement was told to someone familiar with the workings of the campaign, the person said, after a long pause, quote, Oh my frickin' God. The other version of events, which multiple people familiar with the campaign confirmed, is that Carter was hired by Chima and Kem Durim, who was both chair and manager of the campaign. The suggestion that his reputation was tarnished by the collapse of his business was true, but it wasn't only influential creditors angry about losing money. Quote, he was persona non grata in the community, said one source. People didn't trust him after the Carter McRae debacle. Nenshi's campaign and eventual come-from-behind victory in 2010 got a lot of attention, heightened by Ford's election as mayor of Toronto at the same time. The media capital of the country was baffled by how they got stuck with Ford while Calgary elected a brown progressive professor as mayor. Carter basked in the attention. Now that the campaign was over, however, he was done. Nenshi picked Nkem Durim as his chief of staff. Carter says he didn't expect to be hired for the role, but he was hurt at being shuffled aside so quickly. One year later, however, he found another ticket to ride, this time back in the provincial arena, and this one would make him famous. Carter had known Allison Redford since 1997, when they both worked for the Federal Progressive Conservative Party. Carter says, quote, she was a mentor to me at that time, end quote. Redford was Justice Minister for Stelmack, who was stepping down as leader. Once again, Carter says, he had to talk a hesitant potential candidate into running. Now, I was able to convince her that we, at the very least, we'd come in in the top three, and that in the, from the top three, she would at least get back into cabinet. And I wouldn't leave her with any debt. And we were going to run a really good campaign. We built the best story I've ever created in politics. You know, mother of a young daughter, daughter of aging parents. 
fuck, that frame can hold everything. You know, then she walked away from it. Oh my God, like just insanity. She wanted to be the international premier. No one votes for the fucking international premier. Few expected Redford to win. When she did, Alberta suddenly had a woman premier for the first time. Her victory catapulted Carter to political stardom. Suddenly, in the press, he was the mastermind, the architect, the genius prince to the new queen, the wunderkind who had orchestrated an unlikely victory. Welcome back, Carter, read the headline over a Herald story that noted his remarkable comeback and asked, who will he give the Carter bump to next? Two years earlier, he'd lasted one month as the chief of staff to the leader of a party with one MLA. Now he was chief of staff to the first woman premier of the country's fourth largest province. The problems started almost immediately. Not with him, says Carter, but with Redford. She was struggle. She struggled with the victory. Who was she? Who is she? What, is she? what does it mean to be premier? And she had some rather perverse views on it. We didn't know how to deal with a, a premier that was struggling. I ask what he means by perverse views. I'm the premier. I get to decide if I take a second plane to the same place that my caucus is going. Because right. I don't want to sit beside mm-hmm. my caucus mates mm-hmm. and be filled with their inane conversations. He says he was banned from Redford's car within one week because he wanted to make use of travel time by getting work done, talking about policy or strategy or ministerial directions, when she would rather relax. I have a ton ton of time for people with mental health challenges. We don't ask for them. They happen. I think they were happening to her. What kind of mental health challenges? What exactly does that mean? I don't know, says Carter. I'm not a doctor. Redford did not respond to multiple queries for this story, including a request to respond to Carter's specific comments about her. Carter doesn't mention that just days after the victory, Rick Bell of the Calgary Sun dug up the story of his company's $600,000 debt. The front page headline was Chief of Stiff, under a smiling photo of Carter. The story became an early crisis for Redford. Then came the 2012 provincial election, a political roller coaster. Smith had spent three years building up the Wild Rose. The party now had four MLAs after a series of floor crossings. The Wild Rose led polls for much of the campaign. It looked like Smith was about to end the PC's four-decade hold on power. Then came the Bozo eruptions from Wild Rose candidates, including one who wrote on a blog that gays would suffer for eternity in a lake of fire. Smith's defense of the remarks, Pundit said, helped cost her the election. The PCs lost five seats and the Wild Rose picked up 13, but the election day polling projections were so incorrect that it seemed like a miraculous victory for Redford. But Carter claims he saw it all along. But no one believed me. Right? I was running around telling the whole fucking world we're going to win. 
No, we didn't win. Danielle lost. I'm not so egotistical as to think, oh, I didn't, you know, we did this single-handedly or something. But we, we created the environment where Danielle would lose and largely came out of my shop. I did the war room and we beat the shit out of her for 11 days straight. And we won. Then, shortly after helping elect the Premier to her own mandate, Carter was fired. Redford chose Farouk Adetia as her new chief of staff. Her ex-husband and confidant Robert Hawks, a mutual friend of Carter's, delivered the news. Carter says Redford, quote, kept me in the tent, end quote, hiring him occasionally as a consultant. The last time the longtime friend spoke, he told her that... And then I told her that I thought she, she needed to get help, psychiatric help, to, and she never spoke to me again. The dismissal from yet another high-profile chief of staff job stung more because it was Redford. I was shocked. I was shocked and devastated. It was the job that I thought I was doing the absolute best at. There's an expectation of loyalty in this business. And then she didn't have any loyalty because he didn't recognize my contributions. But Allison did. Allison knew that she wasn't going to ever be reelected if she didn't have me. But she didn't want to hear no. It was largely due to his absence, he believes, that the subsequent scandals about the Sky Palace and private flights occurred. There is no way that things would have happened on my watch, because the political cost is too high. I asked whether she thought he was wrong. So I okay. think that she didn't want to hear what I was saying. Okay. I think it's like a, a toddler who takes the toy, and you tell them not to use, play with the toy, and then they hurt themselves, and they still want to keep the fucking toy. She was behaving more like a toddler than she was a premier. But his departure didn't mean the job was done with him. The circumstances of the firing and the question of how much he received in severance preoccupied the media. After months of controversy over freedom of information and transparency, Carter tweeted, quote, In respect for the premier's demand for openness, the amount of my severance was $130,000. Carter spent the next few years working as a campaign consultant for the PR company Hill and Knowlton, popping up here and there. He ran Martha Hall Finley's bid for the federal Liberal Party leadership, in which she finished a distant third. He was brought out to BC by the Christie Clark Liberals during the 2013 provincial election but ultimately not hired. It was a frustrating time, given the heady celebration he'd recently experienced. And I thought, you know, I'm going to get calls from, you know, people across the country to run their campaigns because I'm a fucking wonderkind. Yeah, fuck, I'm a, I'm a fucking god. Nothing. He suspects it was creditors from 2009 still angry at him, still working behind the scenes. He tried to organize a campaign in 2018 to push Calgary towards an Olympic bid, 
but the donor class wouldn't take out their wallets if Stephen Carter was calling the shots. One organizer told me, quote, The community said, we'll get some money together for a pro-Olympic bid campaign, but he can't control it because we don't trust him. A few years later, Carter would make yet another spectacular comeback. This time it would be followed by what he calls the lowest point of his entire life. Carter had crossed paths with Jody Gondek a handful of times before they both appeared in separate segments on Ryan Jesperson's talk show on December 21st, 2020. At the end of her interview, Jesperson asked Gondek if she would run for mayor. Gondek laughed, saying she hadn't decided. Later in the show, Jesperson asked Carter if he thought Gondek would have a good chance in a nenshiless race. I think that a female candidate running for mayor in Calgary is the prohibitive favorite, uh, whether it's Jyoti Gondek or another candidate. Um, I think that Calgarians want a female mayor. Um, we're looking for a different way of approaching government. Uh, and it, it, it's really exemplified by Jason Kenney. You know, he's bringing a very masculine approach to government. You will do things my way. And uh, that's not working for uh, Calgarians right now. He later called Gondek and asked if she was going to run. She was thinking about it. They went snowshoeing in Bragg Creek along with Heather McRae, this being a creative way to have a private meeting while observing coronavirus restrictions, and they sealed the deal. Gondek joined the race. Carter became her campaign manager. She cast around for opinions on Carter before making her decision. Gondek told me, quote, I heard this will be the biggest mistake you make, and I heard this is the only way you will win. It's all over the map. End quote. But most people agreed on one point. Quote, he is an amazing strategist. That's just a fact. End quote. Gondek's description of what makes him so good at campaign strategy echoes what multiple other people told me. Quote, he doesn't get rattled by the little things that happen. He gets the long game tells everybody what it is, tells everybody who wants to listen what it is, doesn't care if the competitor knows what it is, because your strategy is your strategy, and you stick to it and get it done. End quote. Gondek was not a well-known public figure, and early polls had her in low single digits. But the campaign strategy was more concerned with raising her profile rather than presenting a different version of her. Quote, what you saw during the campaign was me. I had a campaign manager who allowed the me to emerge rather than trying to create some version of me, end quote. So we just simply defined her as the Kenny fighter. Carter notes that she had been frequently tweeting criticism about Kenny before joining the race, and the campaign continued that. You know, I wrote a lot of those tweet streams. I wrote a lot of the fuck you components of, to the Kenny the early frontrunner, right-wing candidate Jeremy Farkas, was a first-term councillor, like Gondek. Thirty candidates declared for the mayor's race, though not all of them made it to Election Day. It didn't matter. Even with what Carter later said should have been a stronger challenge from fellow councillor Jeff Davison, the campaign ultimately came down to Gondek and Farkas. She won with 45% of the vote, 15 points ahead of Farkas. 
Gondek's victory as the first woman mayor was a significant event for the city, but it was also important for Carter. He acknowledges that it had been quite some time since his last high-profile success, and the narrative of him as a campaign engineer par excellence emerged once again. Many political watchers were surprised when he was given the chief of staff position. As Gondek tells it, the decision was a practical one for a mayor-elect who wanted to get up and running. Quote, Not knowing if you're going to win or not means you don't make a lot of those forward-thinking decisions because you're not sure where you're at. I didn't even have an outfit for the swearing-in, let alone a chief of staff already picked out. With Carter having already run the campaign and having met the people that we knew could get certain roles done, it seemed like a logical choice. Carter was back in the role he thought he deserved, even if few others agreed. One source told me, quote, every political person in the province had bets on how long he'd last as Gondek's chief of staff. Everyone knew he'd get fired because he can't work with people. In 2015, Carter started a podcast called The Strategists with friends and fellow politicos Zane Velge and Corey Hogan. It quickly became a huge success, owing to its nerdy inside baseball and astute analysis of Alberta and Canadian politics. But the secret sauce was the humor, banter, and general piss-taking between the three. The show presented Carter with a new platform. Unlike tweets and newspaper quotes, or brief appearances on television and radio, the lengthy episodes and jovial atmosphere allowed him to offset his arrogance and ego, a running joke on the show, with his scathing, often self-deprecating humor. Episode 948 aired three days after Gondek's election, and the same day he was named Chief of Staff. This is a strategist episode 948. My name is Zane Belgi. With me, as always, Corey Hogan. What the fuck are you still doing here, Stephen Carter? What the hell? <laughs> Seriously, I asked Jody if if she cared, and she said, "I ain't your mother." Yeah, yeah. No, I think we're in a really good spot. I think things are going well for me. Um, by the way, if your condo board is looking for a treasurer, Stephen Carter will be available. In how long, Carter? Six to nine months. Six to nine months will you be available? I don't know. Might be, treasurer be, might be after a... this podcast. I don't know. <laughs> well, as she said, she's not your mother, but she could definitely yeah. fire you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gondek's victory had some of its thunder stolen by the revelation shortly before the election that incumbent Ward Ford counselor Sean Chu had engaged in sexual misconduct with a 16-year-old girl while he was a police officer in the 1990s. The explosive story and Chu's subsequent re-election set the stage for a difficult start to the new council. Gondek decided that, under the circumstances, she would not swear Chu in, a mostly symbolic move that would not impede Chu taking office. Carter was tasked with delivering the news to Chu, That meeting would result in Chu filing a formal complaint against Carter. Carter says Chu claimed he threatened to leak damaging information about Chu to the media over the following years. He said that I threatened him by telling him that uh, I was going to be releasing information throughout the four years. I don't know how he heard that. I told him 
I told him directly what the mayor told me to tell him. She would not be swearing him in, and he would not be getting any support from the mayor's office. And I think I did so in a polite fashion. There were no raised voices. Chu did not respond to requests for comment for this story. Two other formal complaints from councillors were also filed by Sonia Sharp and Andre Chabot. Both declined to comment on the complaints, which were previously reported. Carter denies he did anything wrong. I don't. I can to say whatever the hell I want to Sean Chu. We're you know, I'm not in charge of him. I'm you know there is no power imbalance right. between me and Sean Chu. So bully requires a power relationship, right? I can't bully fucking Sonia Sharp. She's a counselor. The complaint from Chabot centered on a tweet from Carter responding to Chabot's defense of Chu. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, Andre. You know, don't defend a child molester. Trying to do that. I have no problem with what I said to to Andre Chabot and his defense of uh, Sean Chu. If he wants to stand on that side, I will fucking kill him. I'll make sure that he never gets elected again. You stand on the side of a, uh, a, a child molester, rapist, give me a break. Chu was not charged with a criminal offense in that case. The age of consent is normally 16, but it is 18 when the adult is an authority figure. An internal police investigation reprimanded him and he continued to serve as a uniformed officer. On February 2nd, Tom Ross of City News separately asked both Carter and Gondek about the bullying allegations and formal complaints. Carter was fired that same day. I walked into a meeting that I thought was about personal security. There were two human resources professionals and Jyoti. She read to me a two-sentence paragraph and walked out the room. One of the most cold things I've ever been involved in. Couldn't believe it. Still can't believe it. He had been chief of staff for 104 days. One month earlier, he'd said that Gondek was the best candidate he'd ever worked with, raving about the closeness of their relationship. In a tweet confirming his dismissal, Carter said, quote, I loved working with Jody Gondek and expect she will achieve great things, end quote. But in a statement, he threatened legal action, quote, if dispersions about me and my character continue, end quote. His feelings towards Gondek are less mixed today. I haven't spoken to her since. She's dead to me. She's won this election. This is the last one she wants. The severance package Carter received was $104,166.65, which received a great deal of criticism at the time, much of it directed at Carter himself. Some even made allegations that, given that this was the second big payout of public money he'd received after flaming out of a high-profile chief of staff position, perhaps he'd engineered the whole situation. But the amount paid, as with his previous severance when fired by Redford, was written into the contract for the position as a standard proviso, relative to the considerable base salary, more than $300,000 annually under Redford. On this particular point, the blame seems to lie not primarily with Carter himself, 
Instead, it's fair to question just how lucrative the salaries of public servants should be. It's also fair to question the judgment of the people, Gondek and Redford, who hired Carter only to fire him months into his contract, triggering the severance payout. Carter says his plan was to work with Gondek for two terms, build up a pension with the city, and retire. And I would be able to, you know, go off and work in the arts or something, be an administrator for a small theater company in Kelowna. You know, slow down, not have to worry about it, not have to chase contracts. Now, he says, no one will ever give him that job again, a job he insists he was good at. Right? I didn't ask to be fired. Uh, I didn't do anything to get fired. <clears throat> no, others might say I did. That's fine. You know, but my intent was not to be fired. My intent was to do the best possible job I could do for the people that I was serving. I've been so engrossed in what Carter is saying that I've hardly noticed the other patrons in the cafe coming and going over the past three hours. As we're wrapping up the interview, I asked Carter something I've been trying to figure out for days. Why'd you do this? His back and forth about the interview, from the playful, proactive reaching out to seeming to play hard to get, left me confused about why, or even whether, he would speak to me. Whatever I expected from the actual conversation, it was not three hours of attacking enemies, airing grievances, crying injustice, and generally saying things that most people of his profile and profession would hesitate to say into a recorder. As if wondering the same thing himself, Carter leans back in his chair and thinks about the question for some time before answering. Because you're not Jeremy Appel. He's referring to a piece about Carter's top five scandals that local journalist Jeremy Appel published in May, which he's already complained about during this interview. Jeremy's the turd that you wipe off your shoe when you step in it. He doesn't, he doesn't have the capacity to think through. Like if you're talking to Rick Bell, right? Rick Bell is the veteran Calgary Sun columnist who took Carter to task while he was Redford's chief of staff. Why would I talk to Rick Bell? He's going to write the story he's going to write, and that story is going to be, you know, filled with single, you know, monosyllabic words that are compiled into you know, single sentence paragraphs um, that just play to a certain base. It's not an answer, or rather, it's ad hominem attacks disguised as an answer. Imagine saying something as stupid as no comment to a journalist. Like, if I wanted to, I could say nothing in three sentences. <laughs> and then you'd report the nothing that I said in three sentences instead of no comment. He's said a lot more than nothing, even if he doesn't realize it, though I suspect he does. As long as his audience's reaction validates either his ego or his victimhood, Stephen Carter wants to talk. He has to. He can't help it. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.
You've been listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Klossus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And you've been listening to Taylor Lambert read his new profile story about Stephen Carter. You can find that article on our website at sprawlcalgary.com. Make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter if you're not already. You can sign up for that on our website, and that's the best way to keep up with whatever The Sprawl is doing. Make sure to also follow The Sprawl on social media. We're at Sprawl Calgary on all the major platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This episode was edited by Mike Todd. Our theme music is by Dan D. Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.